On October 2nd, 1954, a young Elvis Presley stepped onto the stage of one of music's most hallowed halls. He struck up his band and introduced his early signature high-energy rockabilly style. He played Blue Moon of Kentucky, which he had just recorded at Sun Records in Memphis along with That's Alright. But Elvis wasn't Elvis yet. He bombed. The venue's talent manager told him he should go back to his day job as a truck driver, and Presley swore never to return. Had Elvis not bombed that night, he might never have become Elvis. I'm Jason Epperson, and this is the See America podcast. From coast to coast, we see America one mile at a time, discovering stops along the way that are eclectic, historic, ridiculous, breathtaking, inspiring, and humbling. This week, Nashville, Tennessee's Grand Ole Opry. This great destination is brought to you by Road Trippers, America's number one road trip planning app. Road Trippers helps people discover the world around them in an entirely new way by streamlining discovery, planning, booking, and navigation. Plan your unique journey at roadtrippers.com and use the app as your ultimate travel guide and navigator. Adventure doesn't come from the fastest route. Start exploring at roadtrippers.com. The phrase Grand Ole Opry was first uttered on the radio on December 10th, 1927. The NBC Red Network's Music Appreciation Hour, a program with classical music and selections from Grand Opera, was followed by a show called Barn Dance. Announcer George Hay took to the mic and said, For the past hour, we've been listening to music taken largely from Grand Opera. From now on, we will present the Grand Ole Opry. Back then, the Opry wasn't really a place. It was, and still remains, a weekly concert that's broadcast on the radio. In fact, it's the longest-running radio show on Earth, and it's been transmitted from the same tower located in Brentwood, Tennessee, since 1932. The tower was once the tallest in the United States. In the days of the hip-swinging Elvis, the Opry was just as rooted in tradition as it is today. Two weeks after Elvis failed to swoon the audience at the Opry, he appeared on its biggest competitor, the Louisiana Hayride, and signed on for 52 Saturday night appearances on the radio show. And as many music stories go, his failure at the Opry launched his legendary career. And that's just fine with the folks at the Opry. Heck, they didn't even allow drums in the show until 1974, three years before Elvis's death. That didn't stop Jerry Lee Lewis, though, who had all but disappeared. His third marriage to his 13-year-old cousin hadn't gone over well with most folks. But almost 20 years had gone by, and Lewis was making a bit of a country revival. The folks at the Opry invited him on as long as he followed a few rules. He had to promise that he wouldn't curse, he wouldn't be drunk, and he'd only do country songs. Lewis walked out on the Opry stage and began with his hit country tune that got him back on the radio, Another Place, Another Time. But this is Jerry Lee Lewis. Whoever thought putting this guy live on country radio was a good idea wasn't really thinking. When he finished the tune, he said, I'm a rock and rollin' country and western rhythm and blues singing mother live on the air and dove into Ray Charles's What I'd Say and didn't stop for 40 minutes playing whatever the heck he wanted. 
This time, however, times had changed. The crowd ate it up. And the thing you need to know about the Opry is that a set is usually two songs. There are commercial breaks and, you know, the show has to end on schedule. Lewis could not have cared less. He played Merle Haggard's Working Man Blues, Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, his own whole lot of shaking going on, followed by the Big Bopper's Chantilly Lace. Prior to this, Jerry Lee Lewis's appearance fee had dropped from $10,000 to $250. He knew exactly what he was doing. His piano skid marks on the Ryman Auditorium stage signaled the beginning of his return to legitimacy. But a few rock moments aside, the Grand Ole Opry is as country as country can be. And I'm not talking about that modern country stuff. The Opry is synonymous with tradition. It's fiddles and bluegrass and Hank Williams. And well, actually, Hank Williams was banned from the Opry, but that's just a sad story of a legend in his final days of drinking himself to death. Despite a few uncouth rock and rollers, the Grand Ole Opry has withstood the test of time as a bastion of American music, a place where country musicians are proud to call themselves members if they're so lucky. The Opry has brought about 200 musicians into its exclusive club of members, the absolute cream of the crop, who, no matter how big they get, come back to play on the Opry stage. With over 170 million album sales, Garth Brooks even beats our friend Elvis as the most popular solo artist of all time in the U.S., second only to the Beatles for total album sales. Still, Garth said, I've said it for the record a thousand times. I'll state it again a thousand times. This is the pinnacle of what I do. Nothing has ever touched being a member of the Grand Ole Opry. With the history of the Grand Ole Opry, here's Abigail Trebu. One of the founders of National Life, an accident insurance company, had a fascination with radio and convinced the company to launch its own radio station. In its downtown Nashville office, National Life built a small studio with a window, which passerbys in the hallway could peer into. With call letters that were an acronym for National Life's slogan, We Shield Millions, WSM went on the air on October 5th, 1925, featuring Dr. Humphrey Bate and his string quartet of old-time musicians. On November 2nd, WSM hired longtime announcer and program director George D. Hay, an enterprising pioneer from the National Barn Dance Program at WLS in Chicago, who was also named the most popular radio announcer in America as a result of his radio work with both WLS and WMC in Memphis, Tennessee. Hay launched the WSM Barn Dance with 77-year-old fiddler Uncle Jimmy Thompson on November 28, 1925, just two months after the station was launched. That date is celebrated as the birth date of the Grand Ole Opry. Soon enough, country music fans began showing up in droves to watch the show, crowding the building's hallway to the aggravation of some National Life executives. Studio B and then the 500-seat Studio C were built to accommodate the growing crowds. Even still, the Opry was in need of a new home. On October 3, 1934, the Opry moved into a small community playhouse near Vanderbilt University, 
that still operates today as the Belcourt Theatre. It was here that the Opry began selling advertising on the broadcast, and the show was divided into the sponsored segments that are still heard on the show today. The theatre was small, so artists would often perform twice to separate audiences in one night. Beginning June 13, 1936, the Opry held court at a religious meeting hall on Fatherland Street in East Nashville called the Dixie Tabernacle. It was a rustic venue with a dirt floor, wooden plank benches, and roll-up canvas walls. Advanced tickets first became available, distributed to customers by salespeople at National Life and Accident Insurance Company. It was an effective sales tactic as National Life hoped to increase its business in rural and working class communities, creating affordable payment plans for its insurance policies. Completed in 1925, the neoclassical War Memorial Auditorium was perhaps Nashville's most elegant performance hall. And it was here that the Opry played through World War II. The Opry also began to charge admission, 25 cents a person. Rowdy Opry fans eventually wore out their welcome and the show was forced to find a new venue. In 1892, steamboat shipping magnet Thomas Ryman had commissioned the construction of the Union Gospel Tabernacle on the same spot where he heard Reverend Sam Jones deliver a fire and brimstone speech at a tent revival. The Victorian Tabernacle had no air conditioning or dressing rooms. But once the Opry moved into what would become known as the Ryman in 1943, the show's popularity took off. Lines wrapped around the venue to get into the 2,300-seat auditorium, which came to be known as the Mother Church of Country Music. Country legend Johnny Cash made his Opry debut on July 5, 1956, where he met his future wife, June Carter Cash. A decade later, he was banned from the program after drunkenly smashing the stage lights. The night I broke all the stage lights with the microphone stand, they said they couldn't use me anymore, Cash later said. So I went out and used it as an excuse to get really wild and ended up in the hospital the third time I broke my nose. Cash was accepted back in 1968 after the success of his Folsom Prison album and his recovery from addiction. In the 1960s, as the hippie counterculture movement spread, the Opry maintained a straight-laced conservative image with long hairs not being featured on the show. The birds were a notable exception. Country rock pioneer Graham Parsons, who was a member of the birds at the time, was in Nashville to work on the band's country rock album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. The band's record label, Columbia Records, had arranged for the birds to perform at the Ryman on March 15, 1968. However, when the band took the stage, the audience's response was immediately hostile, resulting in heckling, booing, and mocking calls of tweet tweet and cut your hair. By the late 1960s, National Life and Accident desired a new, larger, more modern home for the long-running radio show. The Ryman was beginning to suffer from disrepair as the downtown neighborhood around it fell victim to increasing urban decay. Despite these shortcomings, the show's popularity continued to increase, 
and its weekly crowds were outgrowing the venue. The Opry's operators wanted to build a new air-conditioned theater with greater seating capacity, ample parking, and the ability to serve as a television production facility. National Life and Accident purchased farmland owned by a local sausage manufacturer in the Pennington Bend area of Nashville, nine miles east of downtown. The now Opry venue was the centerpiece of a grand entertainment complex, which later included Opryland USA theme park and Opryland Hotel. The theme park opened to the public on June 30th, 1972, well ahead of the 4,000-seat Opry House, which debuted nearly two years later on Saturday, March 16th, 1974. The last show of the Grand Ole Opry at the Ryman Auditorium was held the night before. A six-foot circle of oak was cut from the corner of the Ryman stage and inlaid into center stage at the new venue. Opening night was attended by sitting U.S. President Richard Nixon, who played a few songs on the piano. The theme park was closed and demolished following the 1997 season, but the Grand Ole Opry House remains. The Grand Ole Opry continues to be performed every Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, and occasionally Wednesday at the Grand Ole Opry House from February through October each year and the site was added to the National Register of Historic Places on June 27, 2015. The Opry returns to the Ryman each winter for a special run, celebrating its status as the show's former home. The Ryman is also one of the nation's most active concert venues, still hosting artists from all genres. It's renowned for its world-class acoustics. In May of 2010, the Opry House was ravaged by a flood that forced it to close its doors for five months for restoration. Even so, the show pressed on at other venues across Nashville, including a return to the War Memorial Auditorium and the Ryman. The Opry House was beautifully restored, and the show made its triumphant return on September 28th that same year. Last year, the Grand Ole Opry introduced a new custom-built theater with backstage tours set to music, state-of-the-art special effects, 3D film images, priceless archival footage, and hosts Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood. You can visit for a tour or a performance, and you can still catch the Grand Ole Opry on the radio or in its modern form, streaming on the Internet. What would old Hank think of that? This episode of See America was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, with narration by Abigail Trebu. If you like the show, we'd love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'd also like to invite you to follow the See America podcast on Instagram and Facebook and join the See America Facebook group, where we chat about some of America's greatest road trip destinations. If you're a national park lover, we hope you'll also check out the America's National Parks podcast or come listen to Abigail and me talk about our life on the road with our three boys, on the RV Miles podcast. This great destination was brought to you by Road Trippers, America's number one road trip planning app. Plan your unique journey at roadtrippers.com then use the app as your ultimate travel guide and navigator. Adventure doesn't come from the fastest route. Start exploring at roadtrippers.com. Mm-hmm.